Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. Nothing seems to excite us more than the weather. Elections, wars and controversies may blow hot and cold, but weather is a fixed obsession in our lives. It is also the source of our favourite pastime, complaining. We bemoan the blazing heat and the bitter cold. Our summers are never just bad, they are miserable, and every second one seems to be the wettest and dullest since records began. But winter drives us to distraction altogether. In our climate, we might reasonably expect a fall of snow at this time of year, but the first flurry of the season always catches us unawares, and the nation skids to a standstill. The only half-decent fall of snow in recent memory was the blizzard that struck Dublin in January 1982. We still talk about it in the same way that Londoners might recall the Blitz, the legendary snowstorm when motorists were stranded in giant drifts in O'Connell Street and office workers struggled home through ice flows in defiance of yetis and polar bears and howling blasts. We certainly weren't prepared for that calamity. Dublin Corporation blamed the Met Office for not warning them that snow was likely in the month of January. Then the government had to take steps to dig us out of the mess. A minister for snow was appointed, Michael O'Leary, who later very sensibly quit politics altogether. A state of emergency was declared and the government sent off to New York for a snowplough which apparently didn't arrive until the summer. I vividly recall observing the emergency services in action during that winter crisis. It was quite an impressive sight indeed. It was a full week after the blizzard and I was walking up the quays. A thaw had set in and the footpaths resembled the Liffey at low tide. At Capel Street Bridge I saw three soldiers. At last, I thought, The cavalry had arrived. One soldier was leaning across the parapet, smoking a cigarette and obviously admiring the dreaming spires of the city. His colleague was armed with a shovel, and every now and then he scooped up a lump of slush and casually slopped it into the river. I think the third soldier was in charge of the operation. They looked as if they had dug their way in from the Dublin mountains and now deserved to take it a bit easy. The great snow of 82 created a Dunkirk-like spirit among the beleaguered citizens. Thousands of households stocked up on provisions because we were all convinced we'd be cut off from the outside world for months. A neighbour of ours was so alarmed that she got in enough stocks to supply Napoleon's Grand Army. Yet perversely, during the height of this crisis, we stopped complaining about the weather. We were all suddenly transformed into frontier folk, bravely battling with the elements. We discovered virtues which had been hoarded away for years. We remembered old people living alone and opened our log cabins to strangers in distress. Then, when the snow melted, we returned to normal. We started once more to whinge about the weather. The dog days of gloom and drizzle recast a chilly hold over our souls again. 
What am I going to do with all the powdered milk? My neighbour moaned as she glared at the retreating snowfield. Keep it till next year, I suggested. She wasn't impressed. She knew, and I knew, that such snowy excitements are few in a lifetime, and the next year would come in, coughing and sneezing, with the usual fogs and rains of an Irish winter. These mornings, when a wintry blast nearly takes the nose off you the moment you emerge from your hall door, there are still blithe characters making their way with their towels over their arms to the forty-foot and other swimming places for their before-breakfast plunge. I did it myself until mid-October, but then the autumn of 1968 was a very mild one. The mornings have become far too raw for me now. Why do these others continue until Christmas Day? and then take it up again on the 17th of March, for that's the usual 40-foot practice. There are, of course, sturdier characters who continue without a break through January, February and March, and all the year round. Why do they do it? Well, some of them, I suspect, are men who have otherwise failed to distinguish themselves, and they think to win admiration in their offices by throwing out in midwinter an occasional remark like, There was quite a nip in the water this morning not realising that their listeners regard them as bores rather than as heroes. I suppose these are a minority. Most swimmers just like it, and they experience a great sense of well-being as they towel themselves on dry land again. The waters round our coasts only vary by about 18 degrees between summer and winter heat, so it's not the coldness of the water that's hard to face, as much as the attendant circumstances. The freezing wind as you undress the icy feel of the concrete under your feet and the danger of your towel and clothes being blown out to sea while you're still standing up to your chin in the water, gasping for breath and in no position to retrieve them. I remember once suggesting a cartoon to the editor of Dublin Opinion, but he only smiled politely at me, so I suppose the joke mustn't have been a very good one. I suggested a drawing of a wretched little man at the water's edge, hesitating before taking the plunge and asking, What's it like today? Is the water cold? He's answered by a stalwart skeleton in a pair of bathing trunks who is coming up the steps from the sea and who answers, It'd take the hide off you. In a place like the Fortyfoot, there are any number of old timers who refer to anyone under 60 as a boy. It's rather gratifying to be reminded of your relative youth when you're engaged in trying to massage the cold induced cramp out of your hip and wondering whether you'll ever walk straight again. I knew one such 85-year-old who used to stand like a statue rubbing the salt water into his chest and making scathing remarks about the young fellows nowadays as he watched 50-year-olds hesitating at the water's edge and testing the sea with their big toes. He was a fine bluff old fellow and I liked him. Poor man, 
He found himself some years ago with bronchitis one March morning, and he was dead before nightfall. So I won't argue that constant cold water bathing prolongs your life. Some say the sudden plunge is bad for the heart, but I imagine that that depends on the condition your heart is in. I do believe that if you become accustomed to cold water, you don't get as many colds during the winter as most people do. I don't believe it's any good for rheumatism or the gardening pains we all get. On the contrary, a steaming hot bath is ten times as efficacious. In general, however, I believe the sudden cold immersion is good for you, and that's why I myself regularly face during the spring, summer and autumn what is for me the worst moment of the day, the moment before I take a header into those chilly depths. Carrigan Johnny, as he was known far and wide, was a gentle giant of a man, with features that looked as though they'd been carved from mahogany. He was inclined to silences, though he was never short of words when it came to expounding on his favourite topic, Carrigan. Carrigan harvesting was very much a community exercise in Kerry, and it was one of the highlights of my childhood summer holidays. Standing for hours, thigh high in the Atlantic, Searching for and bagging that elusive black drifting moss was hard. But these were pre-dole times and the work was very sought after for the extra bit of money it brought the families in the area. I was only allowed participate because I had a distant relationship with one of Johnny's cousins. Carrageen, also known as sea moss and to give it its Latin name, Chondus crispus, is a seasonal crop-like grass which thrives on a rough tide shore. It starts growth in March and is ready for harvesting during the lowest ebb of the tides of June and July. If left until August, it can contract a fungus which makes bleaching impossible. In those days, few people expressed concern for the environment, much less practised conservation, but Johnny did. He appreciated nature and realised the importance of protecting it for posterity. He showed us children how to pick carrageen. I can still see his enormous hands gently plucking the delicate fronds that moved with the rhythm of the sea. From him we learned that if the moss wasn't harvested each year it would grow so long that it would become snagged in the winter waves and swept away forever. Despite the discomfort of the job, harvesting the carrageen was a social occasion you couldn't but be caught up in the atmosphere of chat and gentle competition as tuft after tuft began to weigh down the sacks. After what seemed an eternity, Johnny would call a halt. The carrageen was then spread out to dry on the seagrass, which had been cut back in anticipation. For the next ten days, during which the crop was turned once, everyone prayed for a mixture of sunshine, gentle showers and heavy dews the ideal weather conditions to preserve the gel, bleach the carrageen white 
wash away the salt and have what the marketing people of today would call a viable end product. As far as I can remember, the going rate was about seven and six a stone, less than 40p in today's money, and it took a lot of dried carrageen to make up a stone. Most families kept some to make into drinks for coals and flu, well spiked with whiskey for the men. It was fed to sickly calves with miraculous effects, and the water carrageen was steeped in was used as starch. Though carrageen is recognised as a natural food and frequently seen in health food stores, little is harvested today. I'm glad Johnny died while carrageen harvesting was still in its heyday. Sometimes I see a snatch of the moss thrown up on a beach and I know it's growing wild, unattended, the beds diminishing each year. It would indeed be a hard thing to pass through the land of Warwickshire and not pay one's respects to the birthplace and burial place of William Shakespeare at Stratford-upon-Avon. Finding myself in these parts recently, I detached myself from the northbound argosies of petrol tankers and articulated joggernauts, the diesel sewage pipe, and taking the road by way of Banbury Cross, in short time, became one of the half-million tourist souls to make the annual pilgrimage to that hallowed spot in 1976. Not since Canterbury in Chaucer's time has a path been beaten so relentlessly to any shrine, sacred or profane, Mecca and Disneyland notwithstanding. Even in the cold and short-lived November days, the camera-toting Germans and the tripod-shouldering Japanese jostle each other on the narrow Tudor footpaths. The Shakespeare industry remains in high gear throughout the entire year. It may possibly rate as one of Britain's top 20 industries, perhaps just after forklift trucks or fish fingers, and, unlike the others, seems to be booming in these bleak financial times, bringing in much-needed hard currency briskly exporting tea cosies of Anne Hathaway's cottage and small plastic statuettes of the bard, but mainly that highly profitable invisible export, memories. It was exceedingly difficult to find accommodation, and I would gladly have settled for the second best bed he left to his wife, but I eventually found lodgings in the Red Horse Hotel, which had been the Peacock Tavern in Shakespeare's time. There is no building in Stratford, it seems, that will not boast of some important Shakespearean association, be it the Boots Chemist, the Smith's Bookshop, or the Bay City Hi-Fi Stereo Hotspot, all housed within authentic or simulated Elizabethan half-timbered street buildings. 
Only an expert can tell the difference between the real and what Osbert Lancaster described as stockbroker's Tudor. If all are the genuine article, then Stratford-upon-Avon must rank with Pompeii as a preserved time capsule, for it is 360 years since Shakespeare passed through its narrow tourist-trampled streets. There is so much to be seen. There is the birthplace on Henley Street, a frail building held together by subsidies, through which a slow trickle of pilgrims passes all day long. There is Mary Arden's house and Anne Hathaway's cottage, each rose entwined and surrounded by capacious car parks thronged with coaches from faraway places. There is the Shakespeare Institute and the Shakespeare Centre for the more scholarly aficionados and for the more reverend Shakespeare's tomb in Holy Trinity Church, which was old and beautiful as it is now when the Swan of Avon was himself baptised there. And, of course, there are the memorial gardens alongside the stately river and the big draw, the Royal Shakespeare Theatre itself. Most performances are fully booked for months ahead, with busloads and trainloads and taxiloads from London disembarking there every night. The only production I was able to see was a performance of the Comedy of Errors, in modern dress, placed in the grease of the colonels, and accompanied by rock and roll music. A disastrous production, I thought, much slated by the critics, which may explain the comparative ease I had in booking a seat. The Royal Shakespeare Company, like its poorer, less exalted sisters, seems equally reluctant to present the poet's work as he intended, or to leave well enough alone. While this and all the other Shakespearean sideshows are going on, a small modern city of Chinese takeaway nosh houses, massage parlours, double yellow lines and denim boutiques exists in some uneasy alliance side by side. Between the Guild Chapel and the Garrick Inn, one encounters a hoarding upon which is written with aerosol paint the simple legend, Wood Street Boot Boys Rule Here, OK? and we are at once aware of the blurring of the edges between the 16th and the 20th centuries. I wonder what Shakespeare would think if, resurrected, he was to return by motor coach, suitably disguised in chequered golfing cap, dark glasses, lavender beach shirt, swinging his Polaroid. Our myriad-minded Shakespeare, as Coldridge said, who believed that the souls of 500 Sir Isaac Newtons would be needed to fabricate one such another. If Alexander Pope was right, he might not have greatly despised all the commerce generated in his name, for did not that learned man say, Shakespeare, for gain, not glory, winged his roving flight and grew immortal in his own despite? Unquestionably, he would have taken it all in his stride. As Dr. Johnson put it, each change of many-coloured life he drew, exhausted worlds and then imagined new, existence saw him spurn her bounded reign, and panting time toiled after him in vain.
It began as an innocent gathering. A few hens for the back garden. They would eat the scraps. We'd have free-range eggs. And the children would love little chicks in spring. The first comers were ordinary brown hybrids. Golden comets. Good layers, but a bit boring. We got black menorcas. Tall, shining black fowl who laid snow-white eggs. The rooster was a high-stepping gent with dangling white earlobes and a scarlet comb. We called him Skilachi. Eamon arrived, a handsome Rhode Island red rooster, named after an uncle in America. His wives were homely and old-fashioned. So far, so good. It was still pleasant to feed them, lock them up at night and collect eggs every morning. But then... You joined a Poultry Fancier's Association and you began to get strange phone calls and glossy hen magazines in the post. The Araucanas came, pretty little hens, who laid green eggs. The children loved Luke, the rooster, a jaunty little fellow who trotted everywhere. A couple of Polish bantams came, like dainty little jackdaws with huge white crests, like Cossack hats. I called them the princesses. A Scottish friend donated Robbie, a large, colourful picture-book rooster. And Speckledy came from somewhere, a heavy grey and white hen, a Plymouth Rock. The ratio of hens being fed to eggs being laid began to rise alarmingly. We didn't have enough scraps anymore. We were buying huge bags of rolled oats and layers pellets. It's the time of year, you said. They're at an in-between stage. Everyone had an excuse. Light Sussex, good hatchers. Dorkins, Roman lineage. Silkies, feathered legs. Vervarks, very rare. And Marins, they laid chocolate-coloured eggs. Then you got an incubator. More user-friendly than a clocking hen and you installed it in the bedroom. For observation, you said. The magic of hearing tiny cheeps in the eggs and watching damp, exhausted chicks turn to adorable balls of fluff soon wore off. They usually performed this trick in the small hours of the morning. I questioned the wisdom of having seven different roosters especially since Gilachi's half-breed son had turned vicious and decided that the garden was his territory. The children couldn't play there and I ventured to the clothesline only under cover of darkness. I expressed dissatisfaction. Never curse a hen, you said. It's not lucky. I had only myself to blame for the peacock, an exotic gift accepted in ignorance. How was I to know they screamed at daybreak? Rory, the peacock, was not living up to his aristocratic looks and he had a decidedly common habit of leaving his calling card on every windowsill. He proved to be the catalyst in the end. Rory, the epitome of uselessness, along with his thirty-something acquaintances, all cheekily demanding breakfast, There hadn't been an egg for weeks. Something snapped. I flung the bucket of food at the startled flock. Right, that's it. 
the party's over. We bundled the peacock off to a statelier home. We give Scilacci's son to a fearless German caller. A kind missionary took the incubator away to Nigeria and I discovered the joy of buying eggs in the supermarket. No matter how far winter has advanced, it's never too late to talk of dead leaves. One way or another, they are with us all the drear months. Some cling to the branches, others lie on the ground, almost intact. Only a small proportion rot and melt. Two great clingers are oak and beech. Oak foliage valiantly resists the storms. Indeed, there's hardly such a thing as an oak leaf fall. The leaves are torn by strong winds, by the score and by the thousand, but there's always a remnant. In any case, oak leaves clinging are displaced are so leathery as never to seem dead. They appear as if they'd been skillfully embalmed. But beech leaves fall right enough, in a big way, in fact. Often they come down in torrents, as if in a panic, and alerted by a shout, abandon all hope, every man for himself. A storm-struck tree ship the passengers and crew throwing themselves overboard. But for all that, there are beech leaf clingers, especially on saplings, and these persist until the new leaves poke out in April. Another clinger, not worthy to be mentioned in the same breath perhaps, is the humble bramble. The leaves of this hedgerow shrub have silver undersides. Driving at night through narrow roads, the car's headlights pick out the silvery backs of the tenacious leaves. The horse chestnut leaf is fairly durable and retains its fascinating shape directly under the trees. A foxy brown, a seven-finger hand, all thumbs. The horse chestnut leaf is no high flyer. Neither is the leaf of Spanish chestnut. Once a rich, glossy green, it dies or dries to pale fawn and more or less remain where it falls under the naked tree. But sycamores and plane trees produce leaves expert at the flying act. Sycamore leaves are to be found at a considerable distance from their base, crumpled and fungoid-spotted, it is true. The five-lobe leaf of the London plane puts up an even better performance. We have a plane at the back of our house, 70 yards away or more, and the lead dead leaves are frequently blown all around the house to the front steps, sometimes one looks at them in sort of stupidity, as if one expected some message or slogan to be printed on them. There's nothing much to be said about dead elm leaves, except that they quickly go black, curly and nasty. In that respect, nasty walnut dead leaves are worse. Alive, they have a strong, spicy aroma, but dead, they are just messy. The smell of dead leaves might be said to be pleasant on the whole, but people differ. One often hears the tag, it's all a matter of taste, but never its equivalent, it's all a matter of smell.
To continue with dead leaves, many make no effort at all. Our native ash leaves, for example, fall early and perish on the ground after the heavy frosts. The heart-shaped lime tree leaves take on lovely lemon shades and then are noticed no more. Fallen elder leaves are apt to be slimy, but then are so many others. You could take a fine toss if you took foolish steps in beds of old leaves. It would be too complicated to go into the matter of the conifers. These, of course, have needles, not leaves. Every forest of conifers is ankle-deep in the cast-off needles of many seasons. The smell arising from forest floors is strong, earthy, and sort of he-manish. I can't help that one. There's hardly a dozen adjectives that describe smells in the English language. Conifers of evergreens, all except the large. The most sudden of changes at leaf fall is the change of large leaves from green to gold. And having changed colour, the needles come down perpendicularly by the hundred thousand. I saw a lovely trail of large needles early in the winter. It was on the edge of a road, and one shouldn't have to say right under large trees. A long, narrow, golden stream. Next time I passed, it was gone. That is all, except to return to beech leaves and praise them again. They add more colour and consolation to the winter scene than all the other dead leaves put together. Like old soldiers, they never die. A dry wind will revive them any day or night between November and April. Frequently, they stay together in windswept rows. What a joy of childhood it was to go wading through crisp beech leaves, the lovely rustle of them, the pleasant feeling of them against one's legs. Standing under the bare trees in our little woodlet, clammy underfoot, and a dozen draughts crisscrossing, you'd wonder how the poor little babes in the wood got on at all at all. And when they were dead, the robins so red brought strawberry leaves and over them spread. Strawberry leaves? What sort of aegis were those robins? I was twenty-two years when I wrote the song I'm twenty-three now, but it won't be Happy to speak of intertwining briars, mingling to breed, let's say, a winter rose, more defiantly beautiful the fouler the weather, till the world knows what its true nature is. But all I see is an old man standing there, his mind blasted, snot and tears in his face, his fingers freezing into a shape like prayer, his words falling to earth, the feel of ice. God rest you, love. God love you, darling dear. Fingers unlock, lips shut, he turns from the grave, stumbles on other graves, small grassy hills. He'll come tomorrow, speak, and will she hear? He'll come and come although his mind must rave to know she's dead, and time is what he kills.
On this morning's selection from the Miscellany Archive, we heard Under the Weather by Aeon Madden, first broadcast in 1997. The 40 Foot by Mervyn Wall was from 1968. Carrageen Johnny was by Patricia O'Reilly from the year 1996. A Pilgrimage to Stratford-upon-Avon by John Ryan was from 1976. The Garden Party by Rita Normanley from 1996. On Dead Leaves by Stephen Wrynn from 1973. And A Winter Rose by Brendan Kennelly from 1984. The music was Snow, written by Randy Newman, sung by Harry Nilsson with Randy Newman on piano. Hornpipe from Handel's Water Music, performed by the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. Mother Nature's Son by The Beatles. Mistress Quickly's Trill and Snap from Elgar's Falstaff, performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Andrew Davis. Birds of Paradise by Peter, Sue and Mark. And Leaves That Are Green, written by Paul Simon and performed by Doris Henderson. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Brinchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.